Welcome back to another episode of Reform Millennials, the Oilers post-game edition for those in the Capital Region or Oilers fans across our podcast listing network. Big game tonight. We're recording a little bit later than usual because the boys needed to see OT happen and they pulled it out and we're heading back home to oil country. 2-2. Best of three at home. That was gutsy, Jam. That was gutsy. It was huge. (laughs) We're not a sports podcast fully, but holy moly, do I have 30 minutes of content to talk about right now (laughs) with these Oilers. I'm going to hold serve and wait, but holy, what a... What a time to be a fan of it. Like just Joel and I were just talking about this before we started recording. We've obviously talked about fandom and, and trends in fandom and how sports have become a bit more niched over the past few years and maybe seeing a continuing trend that way. But there really isn't anything. There's no better live reality show than sports when you care about the team that you're watching. It's just gut-wrenching. Like you're so excited, so nervous. There's nothing like fandom like that. I don't know. No, there's I, – I never had a lived experience of this sort of magnitude, and mm-hmm. I can't speak to it. I would have, though, knowing me. I would have – anybody would have been like, oh, man, it was just so tough going through last season's playoffs. And let's say they were Boston fans of some sport or whatever, right? And I would have been like, oh, yeah, I know what that's like. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't. I've never had a successful sports franchise do anything. In my lived lifetime, every team I'm a fan of sucks until this year. For the first time, we have that that little thing called expectations. And expectations are a whole new beast, especially when, when you finally get to these all-important games, you know. And that was – I mean, I, I took my jersey off after the first <laughs> – Period, and we were down that three. Surprise me! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Threw that thing in the in the in the closet. Then Took I, your jersey um, off, but you told me you doubled down your bet, though. So that's true. It was yeah. more of a superstition thing than a, <laughs> than a not believing in the team thing. Yeah, yeah, turned the TV off. Didn't watch the second. They proceed to have their best period of the entire series. Mm-hmm. Then I go downstairs, start prepping for the pod. Turn the TV back on. LA scores. <laughs> then I turn it off. And then I turn it, and then I go off to buy a pair of headphones in the Lowe's parking lot of two fellers. And I come back and I turn it on for OT and I watch them score. So, you know what? This whole superstition thing just doesn't, isn't lining up at the moment. Yeah. The eating a donair before every game didn't work. The, uh, the Oilers jersey. I'm not sure what it is, but I clearly do not affect this team. So, I might be able to just tune in every game. I, I think that's the key. I know everyone thinks that something that they do matters, but uh, just watch. Ride along in the roller coaster. It's the best. 100%. So, Cam, so what kind of what kind of roller coaster? Did we have a roller coaster this week? Let's let's give a little debrief. Investing in equities, fixed income instruments and or alternative asset classes involves a substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice as an advising representative with Gold Investment Management Limited, a firm registered as a portfolio manager and located in Edmonton, Alberta, this podcast does not provide individualized investment tax or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. 
This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that is available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Joel Shackleton, Cam Pictures, or Gold Investment Management have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. Yeah, I mean, in equity markets specifically, it has not been roller coastery. We are at a mm-hmm. 16, 17 VIX right now. Things are dull. And uh, to quote a old Wall Street axiom, you do not short a dull market. And over the past gosh, six weeks since, I mean, maybe not six, maybe three and a half, four weeks since the bank failures. It's just been day after day after day of lower volatility in this market. And it just keeps marching upwards. And I mean, with the exception of, I mean, poor guidance from analysts in terms of how US stocks are likely going to perform this quarter, it's just been quiet and we haven't had a lot of news on the war front. I mean, and if we have, it just isn't big enough to make a dent. Mm-hmm. And it seems as though it's, it, we've, we've gotten to a point where we feel as though we're going to land this, this rocket, not to forecast what I plan on talking <laughs> at a very basic breath line here, like, and foreshadowing the SpaceX conversation we, I want to have. But the market itself is quiet. And for those investing, this is very challenging. I went through this in 2016 to 2018, where you had a VIX that was quite low post Donald Trump getting in. And it's really tough. You kind of just put money to work and you and you you have to buy because the pain of watching it go up is just so, so tough on you. Heading into this week, we have a big calendar of Q1 reports. Google, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon are all going out this week. And... Apple, I think the week following, they're going to need to have an absolute blowout quarter because the way that they've traded this year suggests so. You need to see a reacceleration of their earnings per share growth that kind of slowed down last year. And they were allowed to because of the interest rate hikes, but also their share price going down so severely. So if they don't see a reacceleration there, it could be a choppy week especially if one of these big major companies, large contributors to the S&P 500 on a market cap basis, do come in weak. Um, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you which one of those is going to be, but I mean, if I were to guess, if you are seeing a slowdown in consumer, in the consumer, you're going to see it affect Apple and Amazon, the, the heaviest. And I mean, that's just because they're so close to them, right? And if you're if you take credit card data seriously, it's quite clear that the that the that the consumer is weakening slightly, but that's okay because it's going from the hottest it's ever been to something more normalized, something closer to what was in 2019. And if anyone remembers 19, it was a pretty darn good time to be an investor. So again, multiples high, 2021 times earnings right now. We're forecasting a 206 to 210 earnings earnings per share on the S&P 500. Um, in Canada, I'm a little bit more concerned given the, the impact of our big banks and how much that means to our economy and, and how the real estate market is so darn important. However, on a globalized basis, it seems to be that just putting money to work and waiting is a, is a decent place to be. And with all that being said, even if you are worried, cash is paying you darn near 5%. So you might as well scoop that up, right? So heading into our our topics here, and we have a few that are a little bit different than normal, 
We're going to talk about SpaceX. We're going to talk about Netflix. There's been a bunch of stuff that's come out regarding artificial intelligence, et cetera. We'll see how much we move through. I want to cut this a little bit shorter, but the SpaceX launch was, and I don't know how many people were paying attention to that, but I just listened to the all in pod during that second period when the Oilers were playing well and they had Antonio Gracias and Gavin Baker, who is a very near and dear to my heart. I absolutely adore at Gavin and Atreides asset management. And he, they were in the same room as Jason Calcanis and they were discussing the, the SpaceX launch of what was the, what was the rocket cam? I'm forgetting what it's called. Chow. Challenger? Anyways, it doesn't no. really matter. <clears throat> I was going to say Dogecoin. That's something stupid, but... <clears throat> yeah, well, good thing you, you kept that to yourself. Uh, no, so anyways, this this rocket launched, and the reason why it was such a, an important launch and not seemed... Like, a lot of people were saying, oh, this is a huge failure. If you looked at the Wall Street Journal, you look at the New York Times, it crashed and didn't land itself. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if you're just a passerby of this and aren't paying much attention, which I would fall into that camp, you would assume that this was a large failure. However, all of these people that are investors in SpaceX have kind of come out to to speak to how this is such a massive success and a and a huge coming together moment for America. And they're just waving the American flag like we are the leaders of the the, the race to Mars again. And or we are the 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 leaders in amongst all of the countries of the world and our our or advancements in in space, and I, I guess this is a reenactment of the nineteen what is it nineteen seventies nineteen eighties space race. But I think for me, it was interesting for them to start to discuss what some of the implications of this technology advancing actually mean for real life economy. I think if you're someone listening to this, you're like, why do we care about going to space? Who cares? Why do we need to go on a rocket to get to Mars? Interplanetary movement, is that truly important? And these two guys, Antonio and Gavin, actually spoke to maybe some of the more real world implications of this. Now, Cam, I don't know if you listen to this. I doubt it. You've been a very busy guy. <clears throat> I mean, I assume, like, I mean, at the end of the day, like, I, I would assume it's pretty, pretty intuitive. Like, I, I have it on my, on my listen list usually like i listen to it usually on sundays before because there's something that we're going to talk about on the pod from it but mm-hmm. like those guys like who better to talk to about it than those two guys right no no doubt and i i guess what i want to talk about is actually what gavin baker did he kind of laid out the economics of it all so my understanding is is that previously some russian rocket was able to take to orbit 17 tons of payload at a i think a cost of and I'm going to butcher this, but it's something in the realm of $30 million. It costs 30 million bucks to take 17 tons of payload to orbit. This rocket ship was able to take over a hundred tons of payload to orbit for a cost of something around $10 million. So it's something to the tune of, you can send one of these rockets up, for $2 million per trip if they can reland it. And this economic advancement in, in terms of being able to move stuff efficiently and quickly in orbit or via rocket ships mm-hmm. has incredible implications for one, building out Starlink, 
So Starlink is this competitor or spaceship or satellites competitor to our cable internet providers. It's what Elon donated to the Ukraine so that they could have access to internet everywhere on the ground. It's something that people who are farmers in Northwest ter- in the Northwest Territories of Canada are using. It's the people that are unable to um, access the internet in Africa, the Sudan, and in, in, God, in some parts of Alberta, for crying out loud. They're utilizing this technology in order to access the internet. And this internet provided is actually quite good. So there is some incredible economic impacts there and what it unlocks, but then also who it affects. But what was most interesting to me was actually the the transatlantic and transpacific movement of goods. So a lot of people don't know this, but uh, transatlantic and transpacific flights with, well, planes, a big portion of the economics of those of those flights is actually the payload that it takes to those airports. So it's not just transporting humans. It's actually transporting goods. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's something for people to think about when they're on that plane. It's not just your bags underneath that plane. There's plenty of other things. And what this is now going to allow is for something, a trip that used to take, call it a full day to get to Japan is now only going to take a couple hours. So the speed of moving large sums of, of I don't know, weight of goods is, and, and the cost of these things is actually going to drop quite significantly. And now the, the implications of all this is, are, are going to be quite astounding, I think. So this all comes back to this notion of why the heck is a SpaceX worth over $100 billion? And I think all of those things that I just kind of laid out for people make it obvious as to why mm-hmm. it might be worth over a hundred billion dollars today. <clears throat> and to put that into context, that's worth more than I think five of the six major banks in the, in Canada. Well, no, it'd be four of the six major banks in Canada. So that's a pretty hefty, hefty price tag, but they're, they're thinking that um, the, that SpaceX is going to produce something to the tune of, over a billion dollars in free cash flow by like 2025 or something like that, which is amazing to think. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think when you think about the true, what, what it could be useful, like, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think anyone, when they first started doing this, were, were thinking this, this was a potential economic boon. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like something like you just talked about, like goods movement, like truly, like if you just take a step back and think about that, how much of an impact that could have. We talk about how we have such a supply chain strain on the globalization of this world and how that came into extreme focus in the last couple of years. Talking about moving those mass amounts, like it, it is crazy to think about the the impact that, that could have, especially on, as you said, transatlantic, transpacific type movement. Talk about the maybe even from like a from the impact of I'm not sure what the environmental impact is of of hammering these rockets to the sky, but does that mean less planes in the air? I know planes obviously a huge contributor to to issues that would be or stated emissions and, and whatnot. So does that have a, an impact too? Doesn't have to be less of can there be less flights, less less movement as as well in other forms of transportation that are currently currently being used for good movement. One thing I took away because like, I, I follow SpaceX and just obviously want to 
know enough, I guess, and just be aware of, of what's going on and give some interesting information. And I think they had a little small tweet thread, which I'll just read quickly. So as if the flight test was not exciting enough, Starship, that's what they called it. So Starship is the, is the name. Starship experienced a rapid unscheduled dis- disassembly before stage separation. Teams will continue to review data and work toward our next te- flight test. With a test like this, success comes from what we learn, and today's test will help us improve Starship's reliability as SpaceX seeks to make life multi-planetary. Congratulations to the entire SpaceX team on an exciting first integrated flight test of Starship. So obviously, at the end of the day, like you said, what most people would see come across their timeline or in a 15-second news feed is that the ship blew up and it's a failure or whatever it might be. And at the end of the day, like all the, all these things, it's like the fact that they're, we're even doing these things, the fact that we're trying to shoot a rocket up in, in the sky and be able to land it in Japan two hours later with, sorry, what was the size of payload you said? Over a hundred tons. Over a hundred tons of payload. Yeah. So you don't think there's going to be a few, <laughs> few cracks in the, in the first few test runs of this. And at the end of the day too, it's like, I mean, from a, I'm, I'm not sure what the impact is of obviously, I mean, millions and millions of dollars that are being destroyed up in the air when like, something blows up. But at the end of the day, this is something that has so many more potential impacts. Like, I mean, not to mention like, I think mean, the, the whole multi-planetary travel type thing, like for sure, I, I don't necessarily see it in the context of something that I'm going to do in my lifetime, like travel to space like potentially, I guess maybe, but I don't see that happening. But like, I'm also one to say like back in the sixties and seventies, like when the the race to space was happening, like this is just like, that's human ingenuity. That's us. That's like, the human race showing advancement and wanting to be more. And like, I'm all in for that kind of stuff. And so like, I mean, cause like the scientific world is so outside of my scope that I don't necessarily understand all the impacts. Like I, I've learned more about space being a dad of a four-year-old than I have <laughs> the rest of my life, just because he's interested in it. And I, want, I ask questions and I'm, he's like, well, why is Jupiter a gas planet? And I'm like, I have no idea. I'm going to read about it right now. So it's like the, the want for more knowledge and understanding is also, I think an important thing for us to have just generally speaking. Okay. So I know your kids into space. Mm-hmm. And I may, I should maybe not show you this, but the, the SpaceX has a shop to buy things. Yeah. And I bought the Starship torch. And it, so it should be at my house soon. It's supposed to light. You can light your barbecue with it. But it's also, it's not small either. It's like a, it's a, a perfect scale, but there's also. <laughs> it's one of Elon's old flamethrowers. They just rebranded it. It's exactly <laughs> what it is. I'm not even kidding. Anyway, they sold out of this stupid thing. But nonetheless, they have a bunch of clothes. And I think Owen might like some of this stuff. It'd be kind of cool. Sure he, he would be totally into it. Yeah. How awesome would it be for him to have a Falcon Heavy t-shirt? I think it would be cool. It's really neat. I, even watching some of the videos, obviously, like they have, like, obviously, it's a lot of marketing material for them, too. But just, like, watching the launch and some of the slow-mos and stuff like that. Like it's, it's cool. I don't know. It's interesting that obviously we're pushing the boundaries or they are pushing the boundaries and, you know, and anyone thinking about new ways to do things is like, as much as I probably dislike and disagree with Elon on a lot of things. I mean, what he's done, him and his team, obviously he's not, he's the visionary, I guess, but at the end of the day, like whoever's 
behind these things. Like, I mean, this is, these are advancements that, that mean a lot to the human race and hopefully continue to push, push forward with even more because there's, there needs, there's, they're probably thinking of things or finding ways to answer questions that we don't have, like finding, finding answers to things we don't have questions for yet, essentially. And this kind of technology, it's, I don't think we can at, at face value. Again, most people see this as, or not most people, but some people see this as, you know, a billionaire playing around and doing something that doesn't matter to the rest of the world. And it's like, if you just look at it in a vacuum in the context of he wants to go to Mars and send people there, then I guess sure. But that's not obviously the only use project of what this technology is and, and what they're trying to accomplish. No, it's so that's that, all these things is obviously why there's enough, <laughs> enough support behind the company to give the valuation as to where it is because smarter people than you and I can see the fact that this is going to be something that is going to be globally changing. No, hundred percent. And you know, what's just starting to kind of hit me maybe today maybe because I'm in such a good mood because the Oilers won. I don't know what it is, but we've had some intensely crazy things happen over the last nine years, nine months in terms of from a technological perspective. Totally. And obviously the finding a product or a product market fit for artificial intelligence in which people can finally see the advancements that have been worked on for the last 10, 12 years is one. But the the fact that we're making these enormous pushes from a tech perspective, when it felt like for the last 10 years, we were spinning our wheels in mud where people were just making new SaaS software day after day after day to sell us, where we were effectively monthly subscription to death. And it feels like we're finally seeing a step shift away from that and not necessarily on a business model basis, but mm-hmm. into a new paradigm, which is moving a little faster than maybe I, I'm comfortable with. However, it is intensely exciting, not just for us as as podcasters, because it gives us something to talk about, but just it, it makes me a little bit more optimistic for the future. Because the last four years, we've done nothing but complain about the costs of healthcare, the cost of this, pipelines. We're just whining about everything. And finally, it seems as though we're getting solutions to solve for what is the biggest problems of today, and that's healthcare costs, climate change. We have these new technologies that are truly advancing forward. And it's not us reducing our carbon footprint that's going to save us. It's the fact that we continue to innovate in the face of all of these negatives. And that's freaking cool. So I'm pretty pumped about that. Cam, I'm going to talk about a business model that has changed. So we got an I don't know if anyone's forgotten about this or if everyone who listens to this podcast is is wealthy enough to just not pay for the <laughs> ad version of Netflix. But this most recent quarter was really interesting for me. And it was interesting for Fintwit altogether. But Netflix finally has to report, or doesn't have to, sorry, they are now showing the success of its ad-supported tier. So for context, that's $6.99 US dollars per month, but then you're fed advertising. And this new product of theirs has reaccelerated their user growth. But more importantly, 
is proving to be more profitable for them than the standard 1549 per month tier that they have in the US. Now, alter that pricing for for Canadian dollars, so 20 plus dollars in the, in Canada and 10 bucks for or whatever <clears throat> for the ad supported tier. Mm-hmm. But it speaks to just how good and how how profitable advertising still is. And this is a problem for any advertising business because it's showing that one of the largest platforms for with regards to how much time we spend on it is producing a very engaging ad model that people or businesses like to use. And that's interesting to me. I, would you have guessed that this would be the case? Would you have assumed that their ad supported tier would be so popular? Yeah, I think I would. I, I, I guess I didn't actually end up looking. I just thought of this right now when when you were talking and I because I know you, there was breakdowns of like Latin America and North America and Europe in, in, in their financial overview. But mm-hmm. in terms of where they've seen the growth and the profitability in their ad supported model, is that across the board? Because I would have like my inference would have been like from a user growth standpoint, I'm assuming the focus and their, their cash cow is North America. I believe the numbers I looked at, it's almost flatlined over the number of quarters in terms of market share or, or total users in, in that space. But then in obviously across the world in areas that might be viewed as being, being made up of some call it second world or third world countries, will, would they have the, like obviously it's going to be proportionately different based off of, you know, how much an, an ad supported offering would be versus non-ad supporting. But you're, if you increase your access, then I would think that it's going to be better for bringing in a whole new clientele base, if you call it, or like not even necessarily target market, but just increasing what that market is. So I kind of thought that that would be the case in terms of where their growth would be, would be in in like, the ad or the ad, not the non-ad free offering. And then the fact that obviously advertising attached to that in, I would say those kind of markets too, are probably going to be more profitable as well because people aren't as sick of it maybe as someone as us. So for context, they break out Canada, United States from all other regions. Okay. So as a reference, the Brazilian ad supported is about 1890. Brazilian real, which I think works itself out to being about 320 American dollars. So roughly five bucks or four something Canadian. So it is marketably cheaper in those mm-hmm. regions. And they generally lower the cost based on the standard of living or the and or the amount of money sure. that people make on a per household basis. Yeah, so where this average revenue per, per user increase is coming from is all of those areas where they don't have as much money, but people are paying more money to advertise to them. They actually saw a de- deceleration of average revenue per user in Canada and the United States because of their ad-supported model. So it's not mm. better in their richer areas. It's better in their poorer regions. But those poorer regions are, are their fastest growing regions. And it seemed on the call that their new CEOs are actually quite optimistic that the the advertising base and in the United States and Canada is going to continue to accelerate and probably become more profitable than their, mm. than their membership. And that's, 
quite frankly, if you're a shareholder, a good thing. Because at the end of the day, the there's only so much more they can push on that premium side to the point where people are moving the other direction. And we, you and I both know this, people are much more willing to um, spend their time than their money in most mm-hmm. cases. And I'm guessing a lot Especially of people now. will, oh yeah, people will definitely yeah. go down to that ad support tier, even if that means that they're going to ha- be interrupted during their viewing. I mean, half the time, I would guess that I would say even, it's probably higher than half the time people are just sitting on their phones. So what's the difference? <laughs> you're looking at ads on Instagram while you're watching Netflix and you're just, what are you going to get aggravated because you got an ad fed to you on Netflix while you were watching I was, Instagram ads? I was going to say, if I didn't have kids, I might consider going down to the ad it's like i don't need no one screaming at me from the other room what is this <laughs> i know god simon's so spoiled he doesn't even realize that i used to have to wake up at seven in the morning to watch the cartoons i wanted to watch now he just screams at me and tells me to put on on paw patrol or whatever but i shouldn't say scream he just orders me around yeah I think but, some points yeah but it is interesting just to see the pivot and um so can I can I ask you a question about this just in general? So like I mean now so if user growth in these areas, their focus right now, like obviously there becomes a critical mass at some point, just in terms of overall user growth, like once they've capped in these other areas that they're focusing on. And obviously then at that point too, I would imagine this ad supported tier is going to continue to accelerate and get to a point where it's the dominant one and their focus. And like obviously I mean, I know that advertising doesn't ever stop. So like who you can go out and get advertising from is always going to continue to be there and it's going to continue to be a part of everyone's life. But like, is it, is it going to become a point where like what's next for like Netflix? They, they talk about that in the call. Is there anything like in terms of like prospectus type stuff where they, they, they talk about other things on the go or is it really just focused, like solely focused right now in terms of verbiage out in the public in terms of this, this tiered growth right now? Well, they are famous for saying that their number one competitor is sleep. And for them to increase revenue, they need to find new avenues. And that's where this advertising came from. I mean, that is largely because you can or the United States, Canada region has actually decelerated since 2021 when they peaked. And because of that, and like any publicly traded company, you need to continue to accelerate top line and earnings per share. In order to do that, you got to find other ways to make money. And they have started to do or see success in their production. And they need to mm-hmm. see more efficiency in that success. They can't just turn on the money printer and just fund every show anymore. They yeah. need to be more tactical in the same way that HBO has been tactical. And this is something I actually want to talk about after this, which is... I think it sort of plays with the Scott Galloway post that was uh, that he put out last week. And I mm-hmm. think you might've read it, but the importance of cultivating a brand, the, the fact that you can now Netflix is synonymous with quality, not just quantity. And their, their intention is not necessarily to take us to the theater, but still maintain its, its dominance of the home. And they did actually speak to, and they added commentary around their competition and how their competition is now reversing. And it seems to me that Netflix has has won. With the exception of Disney and the companies that have never cared, being Prime and Apple, the, the war for platform dominance 
has been won by Disney and Netflix. And what does that mean? I think what that means is, is the, the major companies like Paramount, HBO, Stars, they're all going to go back to being producers and they're going to sell their IP. They're going to sell their IP to Netflix and they're going to get paid on it because it's more profitable for them to do so. Because they're during zero interest rate policy, it was okay to spend money at outrageous sums and, and not you never needed to be profitable. But now you do. When money finally has a cost, you end up having to show profitability. So you can't just spend and spend and spend to acquire customers at any cost. Your customer acquisition cost now matters. So they did comment on this, and that is something that a lot of analysts were speaking to. But I guess to, in a roundabout way of answering your question, yeah, like their their intention is to up quality, reduce their, their, it almost seems like for the last five years, they've effectively had an unlimited machine gun of money and they just shot it at every idea. But they've, they've, they've made a concerted effort to reduce the people that actually have the ability to green light a show. I believe it sounds like they've reduced the amount of green light staff to, from, and I'm making these numbers up from a thousand to, to 50. Yeah. And that just creates a, a more constrained checkbook, which should result in a, in better outcomes. And just this past Oscar cycle, Netflix had a fantastic resume. And I, I would, I would argue that their, their quality has maintained itself, if not gotten better. Yeah, I think it's for sure. I mean, that's their, I would kind of led you with the question and having my own answer in the back of my head. But like, I, I, I think that has to be their focus in like from a tertiary standpoint or the thing that they're working, like not necessarily maybe talking about front and center all the time, but I think that's like, that's, what's going to make them continue for the upward trajectory is just to be able to have that reliance on quality content and imagine being able to partner with some of the producers that you just talked about. If it ends up going that way, then it's like you just have this monster, right? Where everybody is, because right now, like to your comment about sports fragmentation, like, I mean, even just in entertainment fragmentation in general, like if there's always going to be that, but if Netflix and I guess Disney at this point too, but are able to have a pretty big fragment of that, you know, that's what's going to make it a continued rocket ship. Not to pun on other conversations we just had, but I can definitely see that same that same trend in, in terms of the the focus on on quality as well. And one thing that you brought up in a past a past podcast, and you were saying I don't understand why they do it, is like releasing seasons all at once. Mm-hmm. And I had a really good conversation with like three or four people at work about this, and I was saying how you and I were talking about how we didn't think it was the best idea because you don't you don't create this this need to come back and want to come back and you need the water cooler discussions. Exactly. Yeah. And I actually turned these three people and I was like, wouldn't you agree that you would be more excited to, to do this as a group if you did it that way, like the way HBO does it. And they were like, Oh yeah, I guess that does make sense. Like, cause I, cause you can watch 10 episodes or something. And then you're talking to somebody like the show was really, really good. And they're like, Oh, okay, I'll watch that next week. And then you never talk about it again. There's no culture in that. Nothing. No. It's awful. Yeah, it, was in, it was interesting just to see it because that, uh, yeah, whatever it was, it doesn't matter what show it was, but we were just talking about how it just, there's no way to feel like you're 
going step by step with somebody with anything because someone's just going to cheat and watch all 10 episodes and then ruin it for you. And so. you know what it's about? It's all about creating it, this this thing that human beings just desire more than anything. And it's scarcity, artificial scarcity. Certainly, they've already made all of them. Why not release them all immediately? I mean, you bought what? You go to Costco and you buy 10 steaks. Let's eat them all. We're so glutinous. However, when you think about the the greatest brands, the, the the highest quality goods that we consume and we want, and we we ascribe some level of success, if you have them, you have success too. When you think about those brands, Laura Piana, Hermes, Apple to an extent, Mercedes, Bugatti, whatever, those things all have this this thing of this aura around it that is created with artificial scarcity. And in sporting, you actually get it because of the the nature of the way in which it is delivered. And the fact that you can't produce more because the players can't produce more action. They, they would be hurt or it's impossible, improbable. Their life wouldn't allow it. Trust me, if the Oilers could play 175 games, they would force them to if it made them more money. <laughs> but they can't. And the players break down and it makes no sense for the product. This It, it lives within this, this world of the scarcity that we need to create. And I feel as though the best brand in the world at that when it comes to media entertainment has always been HBO. They are the Hermes of, of, of television and movie production. And I think the, the worst thing that I've, I've seen in a the worst I've seen a brand handled was just the most recent HBO max brand change. Did you see this? I don't know if I know. They're now calling the HBO product Max. So the, however many years that HBO has existed for, yep. they just terminated the name. And now the product oh, is wow. called Max. Cool. That is the dumbest thing I have ever heard of in my life. I want to see the, the pitch guy just walked into the room, had HBO, like an HBO banner on, on, yeah. on, the, on the wall and just ripped it down and said... Nope. No more. I got an not idea anymore. for you, though. Think about it. Yeah. That's a, that does it's sound really... It's not the Facebook. It's Facebook. It's not yeah. HBO Max. It's Max. Max. Yeah, that's horrendous. Like, I, you're right. Because, like, I mean, if you think of the synonymous, like, the, the fact that that... I don't think of HBO necessarily... Like, I guess in the same light, you said Hermes. Like, I mean, I don't have anything Hermes. I didn't even know what Hermes was until I was probably in my 30s. But the... The fact that anything associated with it, even if I didn't watch it, I just assumed it was good. It was just an assumption that this was a good TV show and that I was like, I should probably watch this at some point in my life. Or I can understand why there's such a buzz around it because HBO is doing it. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. fact that they built that brand. And so that, that that's the same as when you see an Hermes bag or you see a Bugatti or whatever it might be. And because I, I, I know you've kind of transitioned this discussion into the the article from from Scott Galloway mm -hmm. in relation to this and talking about how the you can only, there's only so many things that can be forced like this artificial scarcity and how it works and but if you do it right like I mean at the end of the day there's there's nothing stopping Hermes from producing thirty thousand more bags a year or whatever it might be. But that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit what they are, and it's not gonna. It's never gonna fit what they are. 
And yeah. it's very interesting to see how you could get into that that space, I guess. Because like I think of like things like like Supreme would be like that too, right? Like things that just are so have created this wave where it's just unbelievably scarce to find things. And that has just made them that much more important and that much bigger in culture. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually been just this huge change in our culture as well, where we are shifting and I'm seeing it a lot on Instagram where people are talking about, they're using old money style to an extent. That's how they're describing it, where you have what used to be, this supreme hype beast culture that's changing to something more refined or they're calling it quiet luxury. Mm. And I mean, it's maybe it's my age, but, and it's unlikely that this will take hold in the younger generations because it's just unaffordable because $1,200 sweaters is not something that an 18 year old kid could acquire. But in his article, he talks about the change in consumption from Nike to Hermes and the human being, as we, accelerate our standard of living is caring more about quality than it is about quantity. And um, I guess the, the brand of specifically Hermes that is worth 140, $150 billion more than Nike. The, the fact that that's the case when most people can barely name a product that they make with the exception of maybe a belt or a scarf is quite exceptional. And I think that there is something to this where we're buying less, more expensive items, but less of, but less items in general. Your closet is shrinking in terms of the amount of items in it. And maybe this is just a top 25% of the population that's doing this, but I do believe it's a huge trend and it's going to be more so in the future where you're going to have this, this separation, this bifurcation of consumers where you have the ad supported Netflix user and then the premium one where you're, you're inundated with, with advertising and that's the price that you're going to have to pay to not have the premium because it's too expensive. Premium, in my opinion, Netflix premium is going to be $85 a month soon. And there's, not, and there's nothing you can do about it because they, are, they need to expand and grow their top line for shareholders. And that's going to continue to, to happen across almost, I would guess, our entire economy. With, with the exception of certain sectors, I think that that's just going to be the separation of classes. And I'm not saying this is good, bad, or otherwise. I just, I'm identifying it as a thing. And this has been a thing since probably 2017, 2018. I just think it's accelerating and it has accelerated through through COVID, but we're finally starting to see it again now that we're all out and about. And yeah, that's just, I, I think that's going to happen. What is that? What are the implications of this? I mean, for myself, you just look at the, the shrines that Restoration Hardware is building. You look at the, the, the way that retail is moving. It just seems to me where you're, you're seeing a focus on these experiences, one-off purchases, things that you will hold on to for not just two years, but hopefully your entire life. I mean, I myself am a subscriber to permanent style, which is like you only buy one jacket and hopefully that jacket or that rain jacket is something that lasts you until you're 85 years old. So I, I don't know. I think it's an interesting subculture that I think is extending to, to more popular culture. And um, I'm interested to see its effects on stocks, on companies and and the consumer in general. So anywho. What about, what about $385 saucepans? Yeah. How crazy is this? Hey, did you look a little bit deeper into what this guy does? 
No, not really. I was more so reading the comments and actually got down a rabbit hole on another person's comment about them having a knife. And I was, that's a knife that was not his, like another YouTube cook or chef or whatever. And yeah. They had a knife that was like 70 bucks. And I was like, oh man, I want that knife. <laughs> so, Honestly. I find it to be, because I would say right now on my algorithm for YouTube, I would say cooking and whatever in the food space would be like number three on my list in terms of what I've been seeing Mm because I've just been liking and watching a lot of stuff there. And I guess like, so Joel had shared this tweet basically. So maybe I'll let you give a bit of the context on his background or whatever. But so this dude has a cooking channel with 2 million subs. A a couple of days ago, he dropped his own saucepan, sold 750 units at $345 a pop, made 258K. So do you, is there a backstory? Like, do you know much about the guy himself? No, no, no. And I, I guess what I want people to think about, it's those loser influencers you thought were just wasting their time building their following up. It's all just completely been thrown back in people's faces. God, if I had a dollar for every friend of mine that said that, oh, that she's just pretty. She's got half a million followers. She's just pretty. Like, no, dude. She's super interesting and she's worked really, really hard. And now 500,000 people watch everything she does every single day and she could sell you air. And all of these people have done that. They've become our actresses and actors. These people have now taken over the way in which we consume. This is just such a hyper interesting change. And it's, it's cool to see it done. And you know what? Cooking, it makes the most sense because... I mean, gosh, if I looked in my kitchen when I was growing up, the infomercial cooking devices in that kitchen, God, there was one in every corner, I think. Yeah. And my, my favorite guy is the, is the pasta betch guy. Have you seen all his stuff? <laughs> yes. So good. Like he's such a bro, but I just laugh every time. And all of his pasta looks good. It's it's interesting to like in the context of cooking anyways, like I was just thinking about it while I was reading this thread and I was like, at the end of the day, like even the people who were selling us cooking stuff before, Rachel Ray, Bobby Flay, like who were they? Who were they? They were Honestly. no one different. Like they're really good, amazing chefs, 100%. So is this guy. Uh, he must be. It was just like the 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 access obviously, it was there's such a it was such a thin needle to to thread in terms of becoming big and influential. You had to get onto the onto the food network or onto a TV station in order to really do it and be able to highlight your talent and whatever it might be. And with something like this, even, even for someone who is not necessarily has the gift of gab or is able to speak through everything, like lots of these people who are uber popular and are able to produce videos, there's little to no narrative mm-hmm. or talking. It's just showing you the steps into, into making something. And that's obviously this case for the cooking, but that can go for, you know, hundreds of different things. And like you said, like the ability to have this platform to be able to do it and to entertain and to create a following is only going to get, you know, more intense. I think obviously, you know, they do have some threats to the content entertainment side of things as we talked about before with, with generative AI. But at the end of the day, these, I think is if you are, like anything else in life, if you're working hard at it and create something interesting that people enjoy, then you're going to be successful. So all the power to this guy for hammering out 750 yeah. units of saucepans. You, you know what I think? It's just a lot of people are paralyzed by imposter syndrome where they think, you know what? Clearly these people are better than me. There's no point in even getting started. 
or why would I do this? They're just going to listen to them. And I think that success can be found in its smallest doses. We do not have the most successful podcast in the world, yet we still come out on Sundays and and, uh, and we produce it and we put it out and we put our we wear our hearts on our sleeves to an extent. And we, 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 um, I don't know, we, we we're put trying. out our opinions. We're trying. Eh, exactly. And you know what? By no means am I about to sell a bunch of swag to people. However, the fact of the matter is it has benefited my career to the point in which I never would have guessed. I think that it's actually quite shocking for me less so probably for you, definitely for you. But for me, it's been a massive boon. I don't think I'd be where I am today without it, just because it's given me more confidence in every room that I go into. It's made me realize that everybody else that does this is no different than you are. And I, and you can apply that across all industries. It does not matter a medium. It doesn't matter anything. The people that are producing high quality content with two, three, four, five, 10, 15 million people watching it aren't that much more special than you. They might be more refined. They might be more practiced but that's all just a, a matter of time for somebody interested in doing that. And quite frankly, if you just put your yourself out there, you give it a shot, I think that you'd be surprised at how successful you might end up being at these things. So, I mean, for me, that's what I get from it. With um, that being said, for all of our listeners, we will be saying an exclusive offer for a new dishware set for <laughs> branded by Reform Millennials for $29.99 or four easy payments of $7.99 over six months. So check out next podcast for that content and product. Yeah, and product. So <laughs> Cam, I want to go into recommendations here. We're going to skip over mm-hmm. some of the AA stuff. I've talked too much about it. But Trung Fan is one of my favorite Twitter follows. Mm-hmm. And he had a... Re- Do you watch Succession? Uh, you know what? I haven't. That's one of my ones I have not caught on to the wave. Like, I definitely want to, and I, I see all the memes and everything. I think it's obviously, it sounds like it's just a good mix show. Like, you get a little bit of everything. It's really good. And you are a, you appreciate character development. And I think you also would think that this would be the, after watching all five seasons, you would come to the same conclusion here. But the so, people who, produce this show need to produce a greg and tom rom-com so they are kind of sub characters they're not children of the patriarch but they're married into the family or they're second cousins and they are they work together but hate each other and all they do is make fun of one another and more specifically tom makes fun of greg cousin greg and they're both tall and they their characters have developed into quite major roles in the show and it would just, I think more television shows need to do this in the same way that Better Call Saul had its own show after Breaking Bad. It's just such an amazing way to to grow outside of what has built been built with the with the successful series. So um, mm-hmm. I think that his his recommendation for this, absolutely they need to do that. 100%. It would be better than Succession in my mind. He did a good job with the, whoever cut those videos. Like I know obviously he's just sharing someone else's content there, but they cut up those two videos of i guess one was like what like that show with a 90s track so i had like the laugh track and like the oohs and ahs or whatever kind of made me have a little bit of nostalgia there thinking about i can't believe we used to watch tv with this like embedded into the show oh, yeah. and then uh, yeah then they had that that rom-com trailer which obviously i didn't understand the full context of but yeah it sounds like a great show i to me i guess just to comment or piggyback on your taking maybe call it side characters or tertiary characters that are really interesting or are super popular and then creating something around them. I think 
you definitely run a risk with that because like there's only so much oxygen potentially. Like you might have that kind of character that is so perfect because they are only in call it five minutes out of a 25 minute show or in every second episode or whatever. And they provide this either lightness or they're just really interesting and you could create something and it just doesn't, you know, seeing that person in the spotlight for a season or whatever it might be, might not create the same kind of reaction. But I think there is like, there is plenty of instances out there where like for obviously we were, bros when we were 16 17 watching entourage and we're like there has to be an ari gold spitoff show okay well that Which, was like, a huge like, miss not doing that I, mean, I agree like it was a miss because everyone would have watched it because that was everybody's favorite character like 1000 percent. like you're not you, you can't tell me if there was a 30 minutes of just ari and lloyd going back and forth at each other and going through their days that no one would watch it like it would have been a huge success so like there is those those characters where like he would be a main character, but at the end of the day, there was like that was such an ensemble cast where you know you followed the stories of everybody. So doing a spinoff for one person, I think for sure would have worked. Yeah, a hundred percent. I so I, I, have, I get I, where you're coming from with that, but and it, there's just like I think there's just certain situations where there's obviously certain characters where you can't, and that's why they don't, they don't happen as often, obviously, because people are like the writers are like we don't have enough, like we don't think there's enough behind this to to create something, but. I didn't have a recommendation this week, but I just had a kind of interesting Joe Pomp tweet. So I guess this is a bit niche for sure, but so college football. So Deion Sanders, I think if you're a sports fan, you know who that is. One of the most famous athletes of all time, dual sport athlete or dual professional sport athlete. I was definitely more successful in football. He got into coaching, coached, he had kind of big in the news over the last few years, coached Div 3 football got one of the highest ranked high school players to like basically commit to his team rather than committing to some of the biggest like sec div one teams, et cetera. So he just got hired by Colorado university. And so he signed a 30 million, $30 million deal with Colorado. And so Joe just goes through, he's already made a huge impact. So they've, and so Colorado just for context too, went like one in 12 last year and have had like four completely crap years in a row. So definitely not the football team in Colorado, definitely not the, not selling out every game. So since he's gotten there, they've sold out season seats, 700% increase in merch sales, added 800,000 social media followers, 45,000 people attended their spring game, which was shown on ESPN. <laughs> what? So, and then he goes on to say, Dion's biggest impact will come in the, admin, in the admissions office. When Boston College QB Doug Flutie threw a Hail Mary to beat Miami in 1984, the school saw a 30% jump in applications. This is known as the Flutie effect and has only gotten stronger with social media. So he goes through like all of these different examples. And so like the expectation is that it's just going to be just massive for like the university in general, just because the buzz around mm-hmm. being at Colorado University, they've obviously already seen like he's brought some of his players with him from Div 3 that were like juniors or sophomores kind of thing to come to the – and then they're getting a whole new pile of recruits too, obviously, because no one had been looking there at a 1-11 team from last year. And they're like, well, dion has got a huge following. There's going to be more eyeballs on me. There's going to be more national games. There's going to be all of these things that come with like a coach, which is just crazy. It's just crazy to think about. So again, like – I mean, this guy would have already been in the spotlight. But it's another example of like someone who's just completely leaned in to – being successful at one thing, but then also being so open to, I guess, this new age of media too. Cause like he's on everything all the time, but he's also like known for the fact that he is like your typical coach, like there at 5 a.m. watching film, last one to leave, all that kind of stuff. Then he's just completely embraces 
being a figurehead as well. So just interesting to see that. Like obviously there's big, 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 big money in US college university sport, but this is something where it's like the I guess the the real news story in in football in college sports in general have been like the nil deals, like the the advertising and sponsorship deals for for many athletes, which has been a huge change and a huge boom for for tons of athletes and, and created probably a, a better fairness system when you compare it to all the money that the the schools and the teams were making off these players for so many years. But I think this is kind of a feel good story for you know, a, a coach to, to, to do this and to have this kind of impact on a school. And it's just amazing to see. So it'd be interesting to see if, you know, the, you, you get more characters coming out of this because obviously this has been paying off really well for, for this guy. Coach that's, prime. That's what his sign at his, at his, his first interview or his first press conference, instead of saying coach Dion Sanders, it just says coach prime. I love it. I love it. That's great. Okay. Cam, we can rest easy tonight. No one. We're coming back home. Split the series. I'll catch up with you this week. Sounds good, buddy. Talk to you Sunday.